This sermon is based on Lord's Day 19, and we'll read that Lord's Day together. Lord's Day 19. Why is it added and sits at the right hand of God? Christ ascended into heaven to manifest himself there as head of his church, through whom the Father governs all things. How does the glory of Christ, our head, benefit us? First, by his Holy Spirit, he pours out heavenly gifts upon us, his members. Second, by his power, he defends and preserves us against all enemies. What comfort is it to you that Christ will come to judge the living and the dead? In all my sorrow and persecution, I may lift up my head and eagerly await as judge from heaven the very same person who before has submitted himself to the judgment of God for my sake and and has removed all the curse from me. He will cast all his and my enemies into everlasting condemnation, but he will take me and all his chosen ones to himself into heavenly joy and glory. After the reading of the sermon, we will sing in response from Psalm 46, the stanzas 1 and 5. Brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, the world we live in is an unsettling place. It appears to be increasingly unsafe to walk down the street. It becomes all the more important to lock every door and window in your house. On a national scale, we continue to live with tension in our country. We are faced with the decline of morality and threats to the family. Only this week, we heard about a 12-year-old girl in Quebec who sued her father because he didn't allow her on a class trip. What's more, the judge ruled in her favor. Internationally, there is also much uncertainty. Almost daily, we hear reports of casualties in Afghanistan, in Iraq. There is so much hatred, hostility, and readiness to take up arms for one's cause, or to use terrorist tactics to blow up unsuspecting bystanders. All in all, it's an unsettling, unnerving world in which we live. But this afternoon, brothers and sisters, you have come to the right place. By coming to worship the Lord, you have come to the nerve center of the world. For it is through the preaching of the word that we are encouraged, that we are given the nerve to continue in this world. In particular this afternoon, as we pay attention to the part of the Christian confession about our Lord Jesus Christ, seated at God's right hand, and his coming to judge the living and the dead, we are given an antidote antidote to nervousness and fear. Thus, I proclaim to you this afternoon, fear not, for Jesus Christ, our Lord, is the King and appointed judge of the world. Our fear 
is taken away when we consider, first, what Scripture reveals about Jesus as King, secondly, what Scripture reveals about Jesus as appointed judge. The theme again, Fear not, for Jesus Christ, our Lord, is the King and appointed judge of the world. We will first see that our fear is taken away when we consider what Scripture reveals about Jesus as King. As we say this, it is clear that we are speaking the language of faith. For we are speaking about things that we cannot see with our eyes. As a matter of fact, if we would simply go by what we could see, then we might conclude that Jesus Christ is not our king at all. Or, if he is a king, at best he is a very weak king. For the great majority of mankind does not obey him. But when we listen to scripture then there should be no doubt about the kingship of Jesus. The Lord Jesus told his disciples before he ascended that the Father had given him all authority in heaven and on earth. In this respect, the ascension of our Lord Jesus had a double function. We have seen before, in light of the letter to the Hebrews, that Jesus went into into the heavens as our priest. What we note now is that he also went into heaven to take up his task as king. The Apostle Peter applies Psalm 110 to the ascended Lord, as we heard this morning. He says that in his ascension, it is fulfilled, God fulfills his word through David. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make thy enemies a stool for thy feet. This ascension was thus a coronation in which the Father handed over authority to Jesus Christ. We get a graphic picture of this coronation in Revelation 5. There, we are shown God seated on the throne with the scroll in his hand. No one was found worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals. No one, that is, except the Lamb, the Lion of Judah, who was slain but who became alive again. He is the one who takes the scroll. And the heavenly multitude sings, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Notice well who receives the scroll. The Lamb, that is, Jesus Christ. And notice as well that he receives his kingship as a reward for his work of suffering. That is exactly what Paul stresses in Philippians 2. When... After having spoken of Jesus, giving himself unto death, he says, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. Here we see the connection between the kingship and the priesthood as spoken of in Psalm 110. At this point, it is important to ask a question. Namely, who is it exactly that was made king according to the scriptures? The question may seem silly. We are speaking about Jesus Christ, is it not? But how do we look at Jesus Christ? Do we keep in mind that he is in heaven as a human being, as our flesh and our blood? Remember how that, remember how that was stressed in connection with his priestly work. It must also be stressed with respect to his kingship. We should realize that it is the man Christ Jesus, who sits at God's right hand. 
In that respect, we see a return to paradise, where the first man was given dominion. Jesus, however, has more power than Adam, for he has authority over the heavens and the earth. Note that well, the man, Jesus Christ, sits enthroned in the heavens. We need to think a little further about the extent of our Lord's authority. Paul writes in Ephesians 1, which we read together, that God has put all things under his feet and has made him the head over all things for the church. Notice that Christ is the head over all things. That is also the picture in the book of Revelation. But though Christ has power over all things, he has concern over only one thing, his church, his bride. Take note of that, brothers and sisters. We can easily become absorbed with our nose in the newspapers, as if that is really important, while we spend far less energy burying our nose in the church papers to see how things are going with the bride of Christ. Isn't that what we sh- it isn't that we should ignore what happens in the world, but we should keep things in perspective. The work of Reverend Wieske and Reverend Van Spronsen in Brazil may never make it into our newspapers, but you can be sure that the Lord is eager to hear daily updates by his angels as to how that work is progressing. Likewise, the life of the congregation here at Edmonton Emmanuel may never make the news, but again, the Lord will eagerly watch from heaven how we are progressing in serving him, our king. And as for the rest of the world, The rest of the world is living on borrowed time. It is allowed to exist only because Christ is not finished gathering in the sheep given to him by the Father. At the present time, the church appears more like the two witnesses of the book of Revelation just after they have been silenced. But Christ knows those who are his. He will continue to make room for the church so that the word which is the power unto regeneration can be preached. That also teaches us how to pray for our authorities, for their hearts are in the hand of Jesus Christ. We are to pray that they may rule in such a way that the cause of Christ may be advanced. We should realize here that our Lord is not only fighting for his church, but he is also a generous giver. Paul wrote about this in Ephesians 4, that when Christ ascended, he sent gifts upon his church. When you look in Ephesians 4, then you will notice that the first gifts listed are the special offices. Christ appointed under-shepherds to help the sheep grow up in maturity. Further, he sent all sorts of spiritual gifts so that the congregation can live as a body. It is also the very same Spirit that opens our understanding to the Word of God, for it is the Spirit of regeneration. By the power of the Spirit, we are equipped to fight in the spiritual warfare as He helps us understand the Word of God. We said earlier that you came to the right place this afternoon, for here we are in in the nerve center of the world, that is, Wherever God's word is preached in truth, there God's people get their nerve to keep on living in the world. We get our nerve to be of good courage, not to give up, but to keep on being busy in our lives, keep on having 
and raising families because we know that the world is not wobbling on an uncertain course, but that this world is moving along a carefully directed course at the powerful hand of Jesus Christ. And furthermore, whereas those who turn their hearts to Ottawa or Washington will always live with shaky hopes, we who have our hearts turned towards our King in heaven will have a sure hope. For we know that he who now rules has been appointed to come and judge the living and the dead. And that is our second point. Our fear is taken away when we consider what Scripture reveals about Jesus as appointed judge. The last phrase in the Apostles' Creed, dealing with our Lord Jesus Christ, speaks about Him as judge. At first glance, that may appear as an anticlimax. After all those nice things about Jesus, now all of a sudden we hear that miserable word, judge. That doesn't seem to fit with modern perceptions of Jesus as the man of love and forgiveness. The testimony to Jesus coming as judge is nevertheless very clear. We can hear it from Jesus' own mouth a number of times as he described the coming of the Son of Man to judge the living and the dead. Paul, in Acts 17, said to the men of Athens that God now commands all men everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all men by raising him from the dead. Notice again, brothers and sisters, the stress on the man, Jesus, who is coming. Jesus is going to judge everyone how they reacted to him and the gift of salvation given in him. And it is the Lord Jesus who, as the book of Revelation shows, is already now pouring out judgments upon the world. Now we should be aware, brothers and sisters, that with respect to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in glory, there has been much speculation. Many sects have arisen over the ages which thought that they could predict when Jesus would come. Furthermore, there has come in much speculation also exactly as to how these things will happen. Young people who get in contact with those who have grown up in Pentecostal or evangelical circles often hear words like rapture and the thousand-year reign. When you read a little about these things, you come across terms like pre-mill, post-mill, a mill, etc. In particular, that word rapture will capture attention. In the past, you could find cars with bumper stickers saying something like, if you see this car moving without a driver, I've been raptured. What does this mean? The word rapture means to be snatched up. Here, we have what is called dispensationalist theology. It is important to be aware of this theology for it is found in many circles. The basic idea is this. God meant to save Israel through Jesus Christ. When the Jews rejected Jesus, God's plan was derailed. Thus, God decided to go and gather people from the Gentiles for a time. God's real concern is with the people of Israel, it is said. What will happen, it is taught, is that one day Jesus will come and snatch the New Testament believers out of this world. Then, he will reign in Jerusalem for a thousand years, and the Jews will undergo mass conversion. Then, 
there will come a great battle with the Antichrist. Christ will go to heaven briefly and then come again to bring about the final victory in the battle of Armageddon. What's wrong here? A number of things. First of all, as it speaks about a number of comings of Christ, it ignores that Scripture speaks only of two comings. First in the flesh, to deal with sin, and then in glory to gather the sheep. The angels spoke of this very clearly on the day that Jesus ascended into heaven. When Jesus will come, the whole world will know and take note. Paul speaks in 1 Thessalonians 4 about the cry of the archangel and the sound of the trumpet of God. No one will be able to miss his appearance. Secondly, it gives undue stress to physical Israel. The New Testament makes very clear that the real children of Abraham are not those who share Abraham's flesh and blood, but those who share his faith. Read Romans 4. The Gentiles have been grafted into the tree, while the unfaithful children of Abraham have been cut off. The church is not God's emergency plan, because Israel rejected Jesus. The church is God's eternal plan to build a church of Jews and Gentiles, as Paul writes in Ephesians 2. If you want to know where Israel is today, don't look in the Middle East. Look where the word of God about Salvation in Jesus Christ is preached in truth. There is the spiritual Israel. You and I, we are the children of Abraham. Children not of the flesh, but children of promise. Scripture thus points clearly to our Lord again appearing one day, very visibly to the whole world. All in all, it sounds very intimidating. And yet, the church need not be afraid of that day. Rather, The proper attitude is one of eager anticipation. Hear that well, brothers and sisters. Eager anticipation. When believers have their priorities straight, it is like an eager bride waiting for the wedding day. For keep in mind that the church is the bride. And as bride, she is eagerly waiting for the bridegroom to come and take her into the glory of the Father, the glory of the new heaven and new earth. For many centuries, she has been abused by sinful men under the attack of the devil and his demons. She has had to live in a world filled with unrighteousness, which has caused much pain in her desire for righteousness. For years, the church will have felt that though it was in this sinful world as the holy bride, she didn't really fit in. But on the day of the Lord's coming, he will set all things straight And it will become clear that the righteous shall inherit the earth forever. The bride is not afraid of the coming of the judge, because the judge is her bridegroom. For this reason, the church sings about that day with enthusiasm, also about the coming of judgment. Or at least, she should sing about it with enthusiasm. It seems that the enthusiasm for Christ's coming is greatest when the church is heavily oppressed by the world. The early New Testament church longed for the coming of the Lord. It has been the same in times like the century of the Reformation, or even under the oppression of war and calamity. It is sad but true that when the church finds room and opportunity to serve the Lord in freedom, then often the eager longing decreases. We live in a time that now, like that now, when we easily feel at home 
in this world. We seem to lack the vexation of righteous lot over the wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah. We have to ask ourselves honestly if we are not in danger of longing more for the life in this world than for the life in the world to come. Realize well, brothers and sisters, that our future is not in this world. For this world is headed for destruction. Our future lies in the new heaven and new earth where righteousness will dwell. Set your sights there. For there is no solution to the problems of this world on this side of Judgment Day. What is ultimately needed is the coming of our Lord, who will judge, who will separate, who will purify and cleanse the earth, and thus bring in the new creation. It is only when Christ comes to judge that the world will be fully redeemed and renewed from all evil. Brothers and sisters, let us then keep our faith perspective. Right now, Jesus Christ, the head of the church, rules over heaven and earth for the sake of his church, his precious bride. He will not let anyone snatch his precious sheep out of his hand. Because of that, we know we need not fear. And furthermore, our king is scheduled to come again in glory. And then he will judge with equity and justice. He will punish all those who have abused his bride. And with that combination of having our Lord Jesus Christ as king and judge, we can sing about the present. The earth may shake in great commotion. The mountains plunge into the ocean. The seas may roar and rock the hills. The Lord Jesus is in control. Our fears he stills. And furthermore, looking farther ahead, we sing, He comes, he comes to judge the peoples in righteousness and equity. He will redeem the world from evil, and righteous shall his judgment be. With that firm confession of her Lord as king and judge, the church has the nerve to live in this wicked world. Amen.